This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Sarah Patterson from the University of Michigan, and today we have three special guests from a variety of disciplinary fields to talk about social isolation in the times of COVID-19. First, we have Dr. Andrea Boyles, a sociologist, critical criminologist, and ethnographer from Linwood University. Next, Dr. Thurka Sangamorthy, an anthropologist and global and public health scholar from the University of Maryland. And our third guest is Dr. Jessica Finley, a geographical and environmental gerontologist at the University of Michigan. Together, we will all be talking about social and physical isolation in the times of COVID-19, and this was recorded on March 29th. 2020. Stay tuned. So if you guys could go ahead and start uh, by introducing yourself, give us maybe background on terms of like where you are and then what kind of research you do. Uh, I can get us started. Uh, So my name is Jessica Finlay. I am a postdoctoral research fellow in the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan. I am a health geographer and environmental gerontologist interested in where people live as they age and how it affects their health and well-being. Um, And my work focuses on neighborhood-built social and natural environments and how these spaces might be linked to cognitive decline and other kind of markers of health and well-being and dependence in later life. Um, The ultimate goal of my work is really to try and build better neighborhoods to support physical, mental, and social health in later life. Hi, my name is Thurka Sengar-Morthy. I'm a cultural anthropologist as well as a medical anthropologist. I'm also an infectious disease epidemiologist by training. My research and teaching interests really include um, global health and development, infectious disease epidemics, social studies of science, issues around health policy and governance, and I also do a lot of work around racialization. So I'm really broadly concerned with linking theories and forms of subjectivities with economies and practices of care and governance. And I work at this intersection on a few different topics, including HIV, um, STDs, immigrant health, and environmental risks in various contexts, including domestically in the U.S., as well as Latin America, Caribbean, and Africa. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate having this very important conversation, Sarah, and I appreciate being in good company with other colleagues as well. So I guess um, if first thing, I am Andrea Boyles and I'm a sociologist and critical criminologist. I'm an ethnographer and I guess things that, or my work generally is comprehensive. And so if I had to sort of characterize it um, as it relates to COVID-19, Um, I think things that are most interesting or unique about my work that sort of overlaps would be racial threat, systemic differential treatment of poor folks of color, um, Black especially, community disorder, social and physical, and racial spatial politics, which means um, essentially I look at the effects of segregation, isolation, and containment. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, So just to get us started, what we'll be talking about is social isolation in the times of COVID-19. And so I wondered what the COVID situation is where each of you are. Sure. So for family reasons, I'm currently in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, And the state declared shelter in place just a couple days ago. So it came into effect yesterday. Here it means that you really can't leave your home except for essential purposes. I've noticed, though, that 
it's fairly broad as to what's essential. So for example, you can go to a grocery store, um, go to a hardware store, et cetera. So it's still fairly busy in a lot of places, um, but you can still go to exercise too, which is great to get some fresh air as we're all kind of spending time inside. Um, so, and uh, essential workers still go to work, but over 70% of the state, I believe, is considered essential workforce. Um, so depending on how employers perceive what's essential employment. A lot of people are still going into workplaces as well as working from home. I am uh, in Maryland, but I can talk a little bit about Maryland and DC together. So right now, as of a couple of days ago, we're also in shelter in place, um, as is DC. I think this is really broadly defined. And Maryland right now is reporting close to about 800 confirmed cases very low deaths, though, only about five right now. And in DC, there's um, a little over 250 confirmed cases, and also about three deaths associated with it. In Maryland, most things are shut down unless they're absolutely essential. The downtown convention center and the hotel are being turned into a field hospital with about 6,000 beds. And the, all the state schools are closed until the end of April, and Maryland just released some guidelines on how testing will be carried out. So that's also something that's sort of uh, new. In terms of D.C., all sort of schools are also closed. Um, federal workers, as well as employees in the Capitol, are working from home unless they're absolutely essential. There are some city services and public transportations that are still available, but it's very limited. Um, as most things are shut down. Thus far in the state of Missouri, there's been 838 cases. 10 of those have been deaths as the count appeared to be this morning, three of which were from the St. Louis region. Uh, one death in particular was in the city of St. Louis, and then there were two in St. Louis County. As of today, uh, my understanding is that reportedly there's $15 million worth of PPEs on order. Um, it, which includes masks, gowns, face shields, and the like, due to arrive in this region, perhaps or reportedly is you know the end of next week or something to that effect. But I, but so what do you see as one critical or major structural issue within the larger conversation of COVID and social and physical isolation? So I just want to echo what Andrea has already sort of beautifully said. I think. Um, I also work with communities that even previous to COVID-19 have been highly marginalized. They are living in places that are very under-resourced. Um, this is both urban, suburban, as well as rural areas. And so we're talking about um, not only in terms of access to health care or chronic health conditions, but we're talking about broader well-being. So housing, food. Um, quality of life, open spaces, right? And so um, these are communities that were already suffering and really needed a lot of resources and have, you know, I, I don't know, I don't like the word safety net, <laughs> because I don't really think it's a net. Um, I think these are just you know, a few people doing really, really hard work and keeping things together when the state or the county or local resources really aren't enough to make things sort of um, happen. And so um, for me, it's the increased vulnerability that this creates, not only in terms of health issues, in terms of a viral infection, but it's also 
about the kinds of resources that are quickly disappearing when something like this hits, it hits those communities much, much, much harder. Yeah, I think there's there's really two things I've noticed in addition to what my colleagues have already mentioned. Um, one is that I think social distancing might be the wrong slogan. Um, I think that we need physical distancing and that is important for public health reasons and limiting the spread of affection. But we could, that doesn't mean social disengagement and to continue to cut off, you know, our societal ties and supports to each other, especially to these vulnerable and marginalized communities who may already be isolated and cut off from access to so many essential resources. Um, and so I, you know, I appreciate the needs for physical distance, but I think that it doesn't mean that we can just, you know, could cut off people from being a part of our society or, or don't think to support them in this time of need. The other thing I've noticed is as a gerontologist, I'm really hearing quite pervasive and widespread ageism in the daily news as well as popular culture. We often hear terms now of just the elderly, um, so one homogenous category of people that are older and depicted almost ubiquitously as frail, helpless, burdensome and even disposable. I've heard, for example, the term boomer remover to describe COVID-19 and these discussions of who will get life-saving care, especially when we expect hospitals to become overburdened. Anyone over 80, for example, is not expected to be able to have access to a vent ventilator. And so, and I've heard some politicians discussing, you know, there's someone has mentioned that grandparents are willing to die for their grandchildren if they can have a future. And and there's a lot to unpack in that statement. Um, but I think that there's this real marginalization and further othering of older people in this crisis time, um, especially those who are already facing these overlapping lenses or axes of, of disadvantage, such as as mentioned already, people of color, low income, those who are homeless or unstable situations, um, to be old in this time on top of these other layers of disadvantage is really, I think, having immediate effects and will have long-term effects as, as well um, upon health and well-being of these people. Yeah, I just want to add to that and say as a sociologist, you know, the thing that struck me um, and all those things she just said are like spot on. But I thought about it from a social Darwinistic perspective. And it just seems, you know, the whole idea of who's going to be considered as baggage, right? Like, and so if there is this shortage of supplies and so forth, so even for folks who are sick, on top of what we have all agreed to be pre-existing, um, so to speak, circumstances and crisis anyway in many of these communities, then who determines and how is that, you know, how is that playing out? The determination of who gets the actual treatment versus not when we have populations of people, particularly folks of color, who are already experiencing disproportionate marginalized um, healthcare in and of itself pre-COVID-19. So my, my concern is that I had read some reports and things like that where folks with pre-existing illnesses like lupus and other things, people were starting to sort of experience, um, experience shortage with medication. Um, and even beyond that, Black folks and brown folks are already identified as threatening. You know, folks who are poor, you know, it's just a, a, a wide range of people that can easily be captured into that. Even when we speak about social isolation. So one of the things I've thought about 
about is so, social isolation, perhaps in the physical and social sense uh, in terms of community disorder. But I also thought about the isolation of these decisions that are being made, like how transparent is that going to be, you know, and who gets to ultimately decide who gets a ventilator versus not, who's going to share a ventilator versus not, who's going to actually, um, if someone goes, if, if someone experiences coding, if coding happens, like who's going to be worked on versus not, even in terms of the testing, who has the access to testing? You know, that seems to have played out in these very disparaging ways across communities, across states, across social statuses and the whole nine. So there, again, social Darwinistic ideas, the survival of the fittest and the fittest being su um, subjective based on, uh, again, all the things we already know to be true, social class and so forth, um, you know, racialization, the strata, the general structuring of social stratification and those who stand again at the, at the top of the hierarchies. How does COVID tie to your current research? Yeah, so I write public pieces. And the one that I wrote about was a lot with the communities that I work with, which are um, actually older Black women who are living and aging with HIV. Um, so that's one particular group that I've been particularly worried about. Um, I think Jessica had mentioned the sort of intersection um, between in terms of aging. Um, but I, I'm working with women who have, so it's not just in terms of racial and marginalization. It's also about gendered kinds of stereotypes. It's also about ageism um, and aging kinds of discrimination. It's also about being from a highly marginalized community. It's about health vulnerability and medically being fragile already. So that's one group that I've been really worried about. And I've finally been able to to express some thoughts with the work that I do with migrant and immigrant populations who live in highly rural contexts, I haven't even tried to wrap my mind around the specific vulnerabilities. It's so overwhelming to me. I just started talking to reporters for the first time this last week um, because it's really been hard for me to talk about. So these are communities that are, some are undocumented, others are not, some are permanent, others are not, right? So they really vary in terms of, they're really caught in between lots of legal regulations in terms of not only our healthcare policies and which are constantly shifting as everyone recognizes but also in terms of immigration policies which are also constantly shifting so there are a couple of two things mainly one is the rural context which is really i don't think that we even truly understand how it's going to impact rural counties these are spaces in which healthcare is incredibly scarce, if not, <laughs> you know, non-existent. It, they will be completely overwhelmed by something like this. Um, they also have very aging populations already, populations with a lot of health concerns and lots of health issues already. In terms of poverty, these are really high poverty areas. Um, they're also medically underserved areas. So these are issues that are already existing in our rural landscapes around the U.S. And then you add immigration to the top of, you know, on top of that, or you add that to that. And I'm, like I said, I, you know, it's so overwhelming to me what might be happening in these communities. So the immigrant communities that I work with largely work in three main labor areas. One is agriculture, one is poultry, and one is seafood processing, where we get 
crab from. Um, so these labor, uh, these what, what are typically considered low skilled labor, right, or low paying labor, um, I think requires a high amount of skills. <laughs> so I don't call it that. But um, these are workplaces which don't have a lot of protection, right, to even begin with. Um, these are uh, spaces in which you have to produce a certain amount per day in order to keep your job or to keep your visa and to be able to legally work in this country in some contexts. So there's a lot of pressure for these immigrants to continue to go to work. They live in conditions where you cannot socially, <laughs> there's no possibility of socially distancing, right? Or physically distancing, um, very overcrowded um, sort of uh, housing situations. They work in very close quarters. They're already highly exposed to a lot of occupational hazards already. Um, and a lot of them do develop severe sort of health conditions as a type of sort of, you know, the kind of work that they do. Um, these are both physical, this is also highly stressful kinds of living and working conditions. So there's a lot of psychological issues as well. There are a few really, really amazing providers. Um, I'm talking social workers, I'm talking healthcare providers, but I can count probably on one hand the places where I work, where those people actually exist, and they're barely sort of keeping it together before an epidemic. What happens during an, uh, during an epidemic, to me, it's just, it's really, like I said, it's overwhelming. Um, even as someone who's done this for about 22 years, it's really overwhelming to think about. So again, one of the things that I've had time to chronicle has been, um, or at least account for has been, yes, communities of color, particularly black communities and um, how they have often been cut off physically and in many respects, socially. Um, the first neighborhood that I would reference in terms of actual boxed in, quote unquote, um, would be in the suburbs. It was an African-American enclave that I spoke of um, and um, conducted work in, in the in race, place and suburban policing. Um, and so those were poor black folks in the suburbs who um, literally had one way in, one a one way in, one way out community. And so in that sense, that is literally about being boxed in. Even if we talk about Ferguson, the, the apartment complex where Michael Brown was shot and killed, that community is essentially, it is one housing, um, section eight housing complex after another over and over again with one interest essentially into a string of low income poor housing, you know? And so there's, a, again, that's in the suburbs, but, and so that, and so I guess my point is whether we're talking about urban space, because I have also conducted work in terms of community disorder there or suburban spaces, there are places where people are physically shut off. And, um, and so you can see the, the, even the architecture of the place, the physical dynamics that echo that, but then, and, and you see the desolation. So you're going to see vacant lots, vacant, you know, abandoned buildings, things like that by sight didn't look like anything can grow or really and truly come to fruition. Um, it, like anything's lively in those spaces. But then if we count for the social part of it and otherwise, 
you know, one of the things I've talked about are food deserts. You know, many of these communities or food deserts, folks don't even have access to fresh foods, you know, and oftentimes if they're getting foods, it's because there are these variations of chain stores, sort of these dollar places and, you know, one after the other that again, doesn't allow for fresh produce, didn't allow for fresh fruit and vegetables, things that are certainly going to be important, even more so at a time when immunity, you know, folks immune systems need to be built up. You know, again, education system. Now our children are at home. These are in school districts and places. Again, the same way that the housing is cut off and often boxed in or shut off. Likewise, are the educational processes in many respects. They are at the bottom of the strata in terms of the quality of education. Now they're having to be out of school. And what does that mean? And what does that look like in places where, you know, there is a breakdown in technology, where there are additional resources needed? I think even in terms of that food was another thing that, you know, I, I am glad to see that many are talking about, you know, children getting reduced or free lunch and breakfast and things like that. So now what does that look like in the neighborhood? People have already been relying on food pantries and things like that just in their everyday existence. Um, and again, this is pre-COVID-19. People have already been stretched thin in every way. Um, I'm, I'm just, and now it is even more so. It is even more. And, and what I would also add is that this has consistently been the case historically for um, Black folks in U.S. history, um, particularly poor Black folks where there's been segregated um, very isolated, you know, um, experiences structurally and otherwise. Um, and so I don't want to sort of suggest or imply like this is a brand new thing. I think the thing that is most interesting to me is that I'm looking at, and I always like to be reflexive. And so I'm thinking about my own circumstances, you know, even as a black woman, but still kind of situated in privileged space because of my occupation and otherwise. And I'm thinking about like how difficult, what does my everyday look like? What does a lot of folks everyday look like who may be better situated economically and otherwise? And the difficulties that people are routinely discussing, but and so I, I'm thinking that, well, goodness, what must that look like in every day, right? Given what we already know. But but yeah, I guess I guess I'm trying to be reflexive, you know, it, in times like this. And I'm thinking about, you know, um, even myself again personally, you know, and and what things have looked like for me since all of this has, you know, played out and what my concerns are. And you know, and, and so that helps me keep things in perspective, right? And I think about, again, the, the participants in many of my projects and what I know they deal with from one day to the next. And then to sort of hear all the different conversations about how the rest of us are struggling. And I don't want to take away from that. But what I do want to um, sort of highlight or call attention to is, is that for those of us where there may, where we do have some space for relief, um, given our, you know, our economic positions, our occupations, or otherwise, many of that those things are a, become a deficit in many respects in these communities, and they, and again, they have been exacerbated. So, I want uh, what I would like for our listeners to do is to be cognizant of those everyday experiences, the ones that 
you know, more often than not, yet again, are not going to land a platform or on CNN. They're not going to be able to give their individual stories to the nation about what their everyday looks like on the block. Because again, that too is a part of being boxed in. Something that came to mind as Andrea was speaking was also of food insecurity. Another population that is at risk in this time are homeless populations. Um, so further compounding that many rely upon food shelters and charities that provide food, faith organizations, for example, that have drop-in times, their doors are now closed and they may not have the resources or abilities to do drop-in or, or kind of drive by, especially for populations that don't have car access. Um, and so we're seeing kind of a breakdown in some ways of the social infrastructure that many marginalized communities and, and just people of everyday nature kind of rely upon to, um, to get by in varying levels of kind of severity of how extreme that impact is upon their lives. And that leads um, to answer your other questions there that we were getting to. So I've done a lot of work on what we call third places. And so these are sites outside of the home and workplace um, or even the school place. So if it's the sites where we kind of essential to our everyday lives to soak up social interaction, to engage with each other, to support one another. Um, we can think of public places like libraries and parks um, and, um, and then also private spaces such as um, a coffee shop or a daycare, um, schools. Uh, so crossing between public and private spaces, these sorts of everyday sites that we frequent and really engage with each other. And some, as I just mentioned before, with regards to homeless populations do provide very kind of life-saving functions. For example, even libraries, some librarians are trained to uh, administer Narcan for opioid overdoses. Other librarians are connecting to social workers and housing programs. So when people can't go to these spaces, um, it can have real impacts, I think, upon their health and well-being. And not to mention that in the longer term, too, not just that we can't frequent them in the short term, but we're seeing a vulnerability of small businesses um, that may need to close down given potentially months on end um, of not being able to serve customers, at least in their normal patterns. So we're seeing these effects of potentially widespread closures, um, which there were already trends of closures since the 2008 Great Recession. We may see you know, a real tidal wave of further closures of spaces that, that we rely upon in everyday life. So one of the questions that I've seen come up is, and that I had is, can technology compensate for the lack of personal interaction? If you have access to some measure, but, but again, that's a very big if, um, and how much access. I'd agree with that. I think that technology can help to an extent in some situations. Um, but as was just mentioned, it is not universally accessible, nor does everyone have very, have the same level of comfort with it. So for example, I have friends who are all fairly resourced, young, tech-savvy individuals. And so we've had happy hours online, for example, where instead of gathering physically together, each from our own homes, we have you know, enjoyed a beverage and chatted with each other to connect in a different way in a safe, physically distant manner. But on the other hand, my grandparents are in lockdown in a senior living facility my grandfather's computer is now broken um, and he can't get onto his iPad. The only connection they have is someone dropping off food two times a day, but the workers are so scared that they're just even leaving it and pushing it towards their doors. Um, and so while I'm happy to share stories verbally of my seven-month-old 
sun and I try to be as vivid as I can, nothing's going to replace that in-person touch that we used to have to be able to hug and connect in a very much more intimate way. Um, and so I think, yes, technology can help. And we're seeing a wonderful explosion of creative ways of using technology to kind of engage with each other or develop these sort of virtual thirds places. But access to that is still limited to very particular segments of the population. And it doesn't, in my opinion, uh, fulfill all the comforts that we would receive otherwise in normal times from in-person, face-to-face contact. I just want to add, I also work with a lot of populations that the internet or technology is very temporary and it really varies from day to day to month to month. I They often have to get phone cards or other things to sort of constantly update, you know, the number of minutes or, you know, I think we're, some of us are really used to having unlimited access, um, unlimited minutes, even for phone calls. Many of the communities that I work with, that's not the reality of it. So once that runs out, once they don't have money to replenish those things, um, I do really worry about what that looks like, even with I mean, most people that I know have cell phones, right? That's their major form of communication with each other and with the outside world and to receive information. But what that looks like is it varies a lot. And so some people replenish it, like I said, with phone cards or or with hotspots. But if you're not actually able to move around and to travel to those spaces or to go to a, a phone store and buy those kinds of things, it's really, it becomes even more. Um, problematic in terms of accessing. I guess this is part of the access issue, but I do want to kind of point out that just because you have a cell phone or an iPad or a computer, um, it does not mean that that's always going to be the case for the people that I work with. It really shifts almost on a daily level. Sarah, I want to also add that, um, you know, there are other things that, you know, so while yes, technology can be great and wonderful for those of us, particularly that are routinely using it and relying on it. There are other things occurring and exacerbated like abuse and things like that. You know, that technology in that sense is going to be very limited in terms of whether it's child abuse or domestic violence, those kinds of things are heightened, um, particularly when folks are sort of shutting in when uh, mandatory reporting and things like that are minimized. I think it's important to highlight those spaces as well, where um, people are needing assistance and very well may not be getting the help that they need under the, you know, under this particular kind of duress. Also, even the educational process, even in higher ed, we, you know, and I'm, I'm sure my colleagues would agree, not all students are prepared or, um, or fare well with online mechanisms. They're making do in these online communities and so forth. But what does that mean for elementary, you know, disadvantaged elementary and middle and high school students, you know, who may already, again, be at a deficit in face-to-face contact? may already not be receiving adequate education uh, or may need the benefit of additional tutoring and so forth. Um, I know that different organizations and places have made that available, tutoring and things like that online. But again, that's if you can access it. And again, that's very different from having 
face to face, you know, person to person contact and being able to work with someone in real time, in tangible, more tangible ways. Yeah, it's, it's a socialization process that I think introduces on one hand some perks and benefits, but on the other hand, some um, again, very exaggerated um, or not exaggerated, I would say exacerbated disadvantages. Do you just want to give us any of your last sort of concluding thoughts or takeaways um, that we should keep in mind as we continue to physically distance? So I think the only thing that I want to add here is that as someone who studies infectious disease epidemics, I think, you know, what I have to say is that there are very sort of common things <laughs> that happen during epidemics. And I think for me, epidemics really show us the critical gaps in our society, how we take care of each other, right? Um, what our health systems actually look like. And oftentimes we forget these, right? As soon as some some sort of outbreak or an emergency or a health emergency is over and we kind of going, we kind of go back, some things change um, and hopefully some policies come out of it. But oftentimes we continue to see this over and over and over again, right? Um, this was the case with HIV. This was the case with Ebola, um, with the last, you know, few pandemics that we've had. And so to me, I think some of the things that I'm seeing are not new. Some things are. I think the scale of um, what's happening right now is is really interesting to me in terms of what we're doing. And I think in some ways it's great, in other ways it's not. But I do want to just sort of put that there. I also think that epidemics um, disproportionately harm people and specific kinds of folks, right, uh, that are already highly vulnerable. We're talking about people of color, people who perform sort of low-paid but essential jobs, people who are already economically highly vulnerable, those who are undocumented, those who are in really violent situations um, and now are more socially isolated with their abusers, um, people who are incarcerated, detained, living in refugee camps. So there are certain populations that are already at harm that continue to experience really high levels of vulnerability during epidemics or during health emergencies. One of the other main things that I want to stress is that I really hope that people understand. So before I um, came into academia, I actually worked for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention during the, the 2009 flu pandemic. And I just, I know that there's been a lot of shock, a lot of disappointment in the federal response, as there should be, but I do want to, to help people sort of understand that public health and and politics are deeply connected. They always were and they always will be. And these have serious consequences for us. And I also think there are, I really hope that people are really attuned to the fact that our healthcare financing systems are broken. They are broken. Um, and I think that people really don't understand that the level of how broken they are and what a broken sort of healthcare system that we have come to realize as normal. Um, I know people are fighting back, but I'm hoping that these kinds of health emergencies really help us sort of understand the fact that we've been gutting public health for decades now. And this really shows up when we do have these kinds of emergencies. It really brings to the forefront how absolutely unprepared we are, um, both at the federal level, at the local level, at the regional levels, not to mention global level. But I, I, those are some of the things that, for me, not only as an anthropologist, but as, but as 
someone who has worked through several epidemics in sort of healthcare spaces, um, I really want to sort of stress that, you know, for those who want a small government, this, these are the results of, of, of one. And if we really want things to change, we need to start critically sort of pushing for and demanding that our public health really be sort of preserved um, to normal levels. We have been operating at a state of emergency for a very long time. This should not have come as a surprise to anyone, really, who, who works in these kinds of situations. I completely agree with that and would say, too, that it's not a time, I think, to hopefully to, to look, I guess, uh, sorry, it's hard to express. Um, it's a time to to look out in the sense of to how can we help each other? How can we support one another? It's, um, you know, I think that, as I mentioned at the start, I think that physical distancing is essential, but social distancing is not the appropriate term. We need to support one another and think through how can we um, contribute to help each other through this really difficult time with particular attention to those that are already facing extremely difficult and enduring circumstances. Um, and I think that there's ways to be creative and, and try to, you know, we're even if you're not a healthcare worker or a frontline worker or essential staff, you can think about, can I give blood? Can I donate gloves um, that I might have around my home? I know that there's, um, are there, you know, what are, what is needed? Um, and so I, I hope that as, a, as some of the social infrastructure is forced to shut down, I hope that in the temporary time we can try to support each other through this and recognize that it is going to be long and it's hard. Um, and it's, it's not going to unfold in just the weeks ahead. It's going to be months and potentially even years. So we, um, I think in our public lives, personal lives, professional lives, thinking through how this will affect people long term, um, effects upon unemployment, on housing shifts, um, income instability, food insecurity, all of these effects of COVID-19 are going to stretch much more beyond the days and even weeks ahead. Um, so I think we need to be really thinking long term and how we can support one another um, and what other ways of, of public policy that we need to be more appropriate to address these really difficult times. Another thing I wanted to also call attention to is the significance of global perspective. I hope that through this, we gain a greater understanding, people in general, how important it is to have relationships and to not sort of disparage or stigmatize our, you know, global partners, global citizens. It's important that we have open lines of communication, that we have sharing of information, and that we have these relationships, again, that doesn't marginalize or stigmatize one versus the other in terms of nations. These, we are so incredibly interconnected. And I spend so much time trying to teach these things to, you know, my students particularly. Um, but I think that our population at large, you know, um, globally, like if there was ever a time where we should clearly understand the significance and the importance of having these relationships and making sure that they are cohesive and healthy and as productive as possible, this time is now. You've been listening to the Annex Sociology Podcast. Huge shout out to our guests today, and a special thanks to Joe Cohen for letting me create this episode. We're on the web at sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at sociannex, and on Facebook at the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Lizbeth Moreno, music by Lena Orsa. On behalf of our guests and the Annex, thanks so much for listening. Be well.